Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight, won't steer you wrong. Johnny Appleseed himself. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I have been having a roller coaster of emotions here lately. I had uh, had some crazy stuff happen work wise. I'm, I'm up and down with this this roller coaster. I had make a long story short. I had some cool offerings and exciting things happen in my work life um i'm still working at the the same job and and love i I really do enjoy working at my job uh great people everything else great experiences all you know can't say enough good things but just still had some stuff happen that rocked the boat here lately and it's just created a little bit of of chaos but uh we've been working through that I'm in the heart of field hockey season and coordinating stuff with my wife and and everything else. But I have to say, I've been so thankful. Um, my, my wife is doing more for me this fall to make things happen with the things I want to do in, in the hunting atmosphere. And, and I, I just, I feel blessed. I'm so thankful for that. I mean, I, I literally condensed all the preparations for the season into a few days and a few weekends leading up to here. Um, did I get as much done as I would have loved to, to, to do and like, and, and cover as many bases on property planning and maintenance and all stuff? No, not even close. However, when I think about what in my mind qualifies as the bare essentials to get going and, and have potential at connecting at my targets, um, I, I feel prepared. I feel like I have a good chance. I feel like there's windows of opportunity that I have the mindset that when I go in, I'm going to be successful. And if I don't, that's okay. I think I've, I've learned a lot this fall already, and I'm ready to put those things into application. Uh, let's see. I finished hanging, uh, finished hanging a few last minute tree stands, cutting some shooting lanes. Um, uh, yeah, I've been shooting my bow. Not, again, nowhere near as much. This is like the least I've ever shot my bow leading up to hunting season in my entire life. But I have to say, mentally, I still feel confident. I think I've changed my my logic and how I shot. Uh, I'm, I've, I'm probably going to condense my range a little bit more than I normally have in the past because of that lack of shooting. But the mental focus that I have shooting, I feel good. I'm making good shot executions, and I'm hoping to to relay that out here. Um, I have these uh, 
at work we have these flex Fridays and where we we try to you know shorten our our work week up have a four-day work week and take Fridays off because we're a little bit slower this time of year and you know we like to get that flexibility so I've been trying to utilize those Fridays for something productive last week I was scouting with uh, with my good buddy Clayton at a ground that I've hunted since I'm 12 years old and we were, we were scouting with the mindset of just trying to find food food for the fall and hopefully that's going to lead to bear being there you know, the past three years the acorn crop has just been terrible at this one location that we hunt it has not been good and we have not held the the concentration of bear there like we have some other years i mean it, it's boom or bust and the last few years it's been borderline bust uh we've, we've killed some bears but man it hasn't it, it's been like you, you hunt hard for two days to see one bear versus the years where there's a lot of food we might have a bear in every single drive and those are the years that I'm, i look forward to and i want to scout that with them with the thought of rifle season but more because i was just curious is it going to be is the food there to be valuable for me to put a sit in during the the early season in October? You know, with the 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 time that I have devoted to hunt that time of year, is that where I want to put some time? And I very well might. I mean, what was unique, and I don't know if there's any merit to my logic behind this, but um, when I think back to the frost that occurred in May, there was uh, there was a farm in particular that I got a call from that the landowner thought the farmer sprayed a herbicide and damaged a bunch of his planted pretty oak trees. And when we started looking at them, it was clear, you know, after that frost, we realized that the trees that had the most damage were in the lowest topography, like the in the drainages, the swales, stuff like that, the low spots where it would have taken the longest for that frost to burn off the next day. And those were the trees that had the most damage. So I, I kind of took the logic of, Maybe low spots are going to have a little bit more risk of damage from that frost. And then, you know, the other thing, too, is if you've got a south-facing slope or if you've got some kind of um, topography elevation that's going to allow the sun to hit trees first, those are going to be the furthest along trees in the production. So things, you know, trees that would have seen warmer temperatures or something like that in the springtime and then got hit by the frost maybe they're going to have a a lower production of mass crop than something that was farther behind and maybe i was biased because of the places i looked but i I don't think there's complete it's it's complete hogwash because i noticed there was some north-facing slopes and places that had more uh shade or would be farther along that had a higher production of of acorns uh we didn't really see much for white oak acorns and chestnut acorns um you know chestnut oaks uh, which are in the white oak family it was mostly red oaks but there was still acorns so that excited me um the next two fridays of these flex fridays if i can make all work out and cross my fingers i am planning to go down and do some more scouting in new jersey um i'm trying to have the logic of just work hard, scout hard, and take it for what's best. I, I'm just not going to lie. I really want to kill a bear. Like, it, the the closer we get, the more I talk about it with people, the more I think about it, the more I look on maps and scout and, and just formulate. I'm just, 
I haven't felt this level of drive and excitement for for something in the hunting woods in a few years, and this is really eating at me. Like I really want to kill a bear this year with my bow, and now I'm even getting greedy, thinking, well, maybe maybe there's a way I can shoot one in New Jersey, and then I'll come over to PA and shoot one. I'll be like, I'll just be happy if I get one. But you know, that's how how your mind plays those kind of games on you. But that's what's new and happening with me. And uh, with everybody preparing for season, let's face it, we all want to be successful. And when you have a successful season, you know, we talked about meat preparation and and butchering and, and things of that nature and what to do after the harvest. And we're going to have another after the harvest conversation on this week's episode. We're talking with Brian Good from Triple Trophy uh, Taxidermy. Brian is, uh, I've had some mutual interaction with over the years. I've gotten to know him. He's a heck of a nice guy. He's a fantastic taxidermy. His attention to detail is, is obvious even in the pictures that he posts on his Facebook page, but I've seen his work in, in, uh, in person. I also had the privilege when I was younger to kind of shadow he and some of the, the, the people he worked with. And we talk about that a little bit in this episode and get to see the, the level of quality that's put into the work and the knowledge behind um, his work. And it's something I can greatly appreciate. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm successful enough to have something to take to him this fall. Uh, but we're going to talk about, you know, care for for game whether it's a deer a turkey a bear whatever it would be things to consider when you're when you want certain types of of mounts or poses or or things to do they're going to first of all help your your tax nervous and, and and keep him happy which is ultimately going to end in a more quality product for you and uh, we just have some general hunting conversation brian's an avid hunter he loves to deer hunt loves the turkey hunt loves all the same things you and i enjoy uh enjoy but he's uh, he's an artist, and uh, he he brings his art into light in this conversation, and I think you guys can appreciate that. So let's hop into it real quick before we do. Just want to give a shout out to our partners, Radix Hunting. I am running three M Core cell cameras right now, and I have to say I have been very impressed uh, as far as the uh, ability to adjust them with the Scout Tech app. I've been happy with the the image uh, response. And uh, j- just there, uh, I'm, I'm not missing things. I mean, I did a little bit of testing on the camera that I have behind my house and trying to see if it would it would miss certain things. And I tried to replicate how a deer might approach this situation and see if there was a way that I could miss an opportunity. And every time that I did, I, I, I captured those images. And uh, I appreciate that. I'm also, uh, I hung two of their new hang-on tree stands in their sticks. And I have to say, I'm really happy with that first of all the stands were comfortable they were easy to easy to hang one thing i don't like about a lot of hang on tree stands is they'll only give you one strap to hang just the main strap but i i I like that with the radix stand you have the the main lead weight bearing strap to put around you set your tree stand um to to be uh be flush with the tree and be stable and then for added security at the bottom of the stand, put a ratchet around it and tighten it up and secure just that extra level of assurance. But uh, quiet. And the other thing I too I like with the, the sticks is they're separate sections. So you can cinch them in and really get them tight to the tree and they're a lot more quiet. You don't have that uh, clinking where you've got metal sections that go together. I, I, I like those sticks better than like a, a ladder stick that you put together and ratchet around the tree. So I've been really happy with Radix. Uh, check them out, guys, RadixHunting.com. Follow them on Instagram. Follow them on, uh, on 
any social media that uh, you have up on, you know, just look up at Radix Hunting and, and you'll find them. A lot of uh, a lot of great things coming from them. And uh, that's not to mention, last thing would be their stick and pick feature, uh, accessories for, for trail cameras, whether it's uh, trail camera mounts and adapters or things like that. And then lastly, guys, our shout out to Huntworth. Right now, as they speak, they have a 20% off sale going on right now so check out huntworthgear.com right now i am running the disruption pattern on the camouflage that i'm using um but i have to say leading up into the season i'm probably going to be running their uh their moisture wicking base layer and then the uh the oh my goodness it's leaving me their lightweight gear that they uh, that that they sent me Um, i'm happy with how comfortable it is uh, I wore it in turkey season. I really didn't perspire and feel like I was drained, even though it was 80 degrees on some of those turkey hunts. I was uh, I was thrilled with uh, the level of maneuverability that I had and just feeling comfortable when I when I hunted. That was something I never appreciated before in uh, in hunting clothing. I was always cheap. And I think you guys can appreciate that too. And here's your opportunity to get something that's highly versatile. That you can get um, you can get one set of medium weight or lightweight, and it can last you most of Pennsylvania season. And you can get it at 20% off. So check out HuntworthGear.com. And with that, guys, let's get to this week's episode. So joining me today on the show, I have Brian Good from Triple Trophy Taxidermy. Uh, thanks for letting me crash your your party this morning in the shop. Sure, not a problem. Yeah, I was uh, I was talking to you about this last year, and we never made this happen. And then I really wanted to do an episode with you because you do a ton of dead from taxidermy work. A lot of it's to this area, but some of it's not. I mean, you you kind of do all kinds of North American stuff, right? Yeah. So definitely, majority of the work would be. excuse me, local work. Now there are like, for example, this past summer I would have done a javelina. I got in an Ibex. So there's some customers that travel to hunt, but majority would be more local North American game. I also really enjoy doing predators. So I do a fair amount of those as well. You enjoy turkeys, I think too. Oh yeah. So I try to save enough time to do some deer save space for turkeys as well as predators. So sometimes that means saying no to some works. I don't get flooded with deer. So I still have some space for turkeys and predators, things like that. I'm kind of curious, how did you cut your teeth in taxidermy too? Because like, I remember when I was younger and, you know, you go through the whole spiel of what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was, you know, I always was an avid hunter and loved taxidermy. And I I just think the coolest thing in the world is a wall that's just completely void of space because it's filled with deer heads. But uh, I thought, yeah, taxidermy sounds cool. And I started learning about what it is, and I tinkered with it a little bit. I'm like, I am not the person with patience or the artist in me to be able to handle that. So I'm kind of curious how you got into it. Sure. So my first memory of that would be when I was probably 13, we had a taxidermist come to the school I was in and he showed us the basics of taxidermy and it was that day I was like that's what I want to do when I grow up I want to be a taxidermist and a little lit a little bit of a fire under me or an interest to do that and I know sometime later I don't know exactly what age I was I shot a squirrel and found out or I found in a catalog you can buy a taxidermy or a squirrel kit for taxidermy so I bought that and 
But the scroll I had to mount on that on the form that I got in that box, the form was too big, and I kind of gave up on it. I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I know, yeah, there would have been ways to still make it work to adjust the form, but I never did mount that squirrel, but still had that interest to be a taxidermist at some point. And then my cousin was or does taxidermy, and when I was 17, I heard that he was looking for someone to help him out in his taxidermy shop, and specifically with deer. And that's when I was like, well, I would love to do that. And when I was 17, started part-time for him. And, well, many years later, I'm still doing taxidermy. So that was the where I started working for uh, actually Kanadi Taxidermy. Mm-hmm. Which at one point was Wildlife Studios. Because yes. what, what was a funny story, we made the connection. Um, if you listened to a show a couple weeks ago, I had uh, I did my hundredth episode with my two grandfathers. Yes. And uh, my one grandfather um, that was on the show, he did a bunch of hunts out of the country, and he took a lot of his trophies to uh, Wildlife Studios, sure. Kanadi now. Yep, I remember him. And in the in the process, he uh, he just worked your your cousin over the coals convincing him that this he has this young grandson that needs a summertime job and i actually worked there at you know like two days a week or something like that one summer and you know uh probably caused your your cousin some more gray hairs in a shorter amount of time but anyway it was it was neat that we made that connection years later that i was there for a summer i think you were at there at that point yeah too, part-time. I, I would have been now was that still wildlife studios at that point yes it was i actually don't when was it that they made the the switch because i mean I, that would have been i was like a freshman in high school so i was probably like 14 years old when okay. that happened so i mean you're looking that's a while that's, ago yeah <laughs> Almost 15 years. Yeah, I don't remember what year it would have been. I'm going to say it's at least five years now that that switch, but I know how time flies, and it might be closer to to seven years. I really don't know for sure. Right. But you worked there for quite a while, and then you've you've branched out now, and you've you've moved to a different part of the state, and you're on your own here. And mm-hmm. I mean, you you do you work a lot of stuff. I mean, every time I come to this shop, it's loaded with stuff in the in the showroom or the workroom here. Yeah. Yeah, I was a little nervous about starting on my own. It was, I had a great job at Kanadi. I really enjoyed it. Got a lot of experience there. I was working for them for 15 years, so definitely had some experience there. The area we moved to, I had a few local people that knew I'm a taxidermist that nudged me a few times, like, hey, you really should consider going your own. Like, there's no taxidermist right around here. And I do enjoy getting to meet local people. And finally, fall of 21. I went on my own and really wasn't sure what to expect, how much work I would get in, but really the struggle more is when to say no. I've been even blessed with full-time work even the first year and now the second year going into it. I realize it's hard for me to say no, (laughs) but it is important to say that sometimes because my, my goal is to keep it within a year turnaround. And I know I mean, so far, like, for example, I'm working at last year's deer. Now I'm almost finished with last year's deer, and this is August. So I'm ideally like like to stay within nine-month turnaround. Now some of the predators, I, I can't stay all within the nine months, but I def- definitely want to do what I can to keep it within a year. So been blessed with work. And That's a good way to have it. I'd rather have it that way than the other way too. So the, the big question too 
because I've, I've had this conversation with our, our mutual friend Devon and I've had this conversation with other people who do stuff hunting related as for, for career. Do you get to spend the time hunting you want to spend time hunting when you're doing something that revolves around your time in hunting season too? That's the challenge. That's a, a big challenge actually. Now, well, last year it probably cost me a buck, a good buck, but. Oh, I'll we got to dive into that now. <laughs> so it was the first week of archery. It would have been the second Saturday of archery. I had been scouting a I, I called him the wide 10 he was a he didn't have high times but he was a good 20 inch wide mm. 10 point and knew about where he was betting and we had a little bit of a cold front that Saturday and before I went out hunting I had a customer call me he had shot a nice buck he was wondering if I could skin it out for him for a shoulder mount well I was like sure you know I'll, I'll make that work he had about an hour drive and he came down and I skinned it out for him. And after he left, I'm like, I have time to at least slip out and watch that field edge where I thought he could possibly come out. Like I figured if it, if he would come out, it'd be that final minutes of shooting light. So I'm like, it's a fairly low risk to move at least to the field edge and, and observe that. And if he comes out, get a shot. And I went out there, I'm sneaking up to the field edge and I wanted to glass it just to make sure there's no deer out there. And wouldn't you know, the buck I was after was standing 10 yards in front of where I wanted to be positioned at that field edge. Mm. I was pretty sick about it. Well, that's and, the way it goes. Yeah. So he ended up moving into some taller grass and I tried to make a move on him, but it didn't work out. And I did see that buck one time later during the rut, tried grunting him in, but he, he was on a mission. And that was the last I saw the buck. I did get a trail cam picture of him later but i really don't know if he made it through the season or not but i look back at that as like oh man if i would have you know said no would have it all worked out well maybe maybe not but it is what it is i'm right i'm like i said it's i'm grateful for the business but yeah that definitely adds a bit of a challenge to trying to hunt and do taxidermy because you're busy at the same time well yeah i mean you, you got to almost like cater your hours in a certain manner that makes it advantageous and that's still tough when you've got a family too sure. i know we were talking in the past about some of the some of the deer you've hunted and uh the pressure the pressure that you deal with on some of the places that you hunt are you better off trying to get one early and get it out of the way in most years or is it not like that all the time that's great if it works that way <laughs> so i am not strictly a trophy hunter like some guys are and the properties I hunt I hunt a number of private properties but it's the private properties are sometimes more pressured than public land because the properties that I'm hunting are mainly people that want the deer farmers that want the deer shot some of them are enrolled in the red tag program so some of these farms are getting pressured you know throughout the summer even because of the crop damage and then uh, the private places, yeah, some of them just, I feel like I can't get back in like I can on public land mm -hmm. and sometimes deal with a lot of pressure. So yeah, I love it when I can get a buck early season. I've been fortunate to do that for a few, uh, for a number of years, but it doesn't always work out that way. No, it doesn't. I, I try to do it every year. Cause it seems like for me, the first three weeks of October seem to be the chances of me seeing a deer I want to shoot. And I've been fortunate. I've I've killed a bunch of of buck in that time. Mm -hmm. Some of my best ones, but yeah, it doesn't always work yeah. out that way. Sometimes it doesn't. 
But uh, now you uh, and another thing too, I've kind of learned like you enjoy deer hunting, but you kind of enjoy turkey hunting a little bit more, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I'm not sure where to put that. Maybe about the same, very very close. I'm not sure which one I would rather be doing, but in the springtime, there's just something so neat about being out there, beautiful spring morning and hearing that gobbler, but it's also just a lot of fun out there in the tree, or I mainly hunt out of a saddle, but sitting out there as it's getting light, just, uh, it's pretty hard to beat as well. There's like a four week span in the year, right around May, April, May, where the only thing I think about is turkeys and it's, it's the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And like, I remember for whatever reason this year, like I was really in turkey mode and even into early June, I was seeing birds like the first week of June, I was seeing gobblers with hens and strutting and everything else. And it still got me fired up and I was watching turkeys. I'm thinking, man, this is never going to get old. And then uh, I was thinking about it yesterday. I was, I was in a field and I drove up and went, Oh, there's some turkeys. And then went about my business. Like it wasn't a big deal anymore. So it's, it's funny because like it's, it's, it's only the greatest thing in the world during that time for me. Every other time, it's yep. just all about whitetails. Yep. I've thought about that a number of times, like getting a picture of a gobbler in the fall when I have the camera set for bucks. just doesn't do the same for me as, you know, in the springtime when I'm after them. I, I completely agree. Well, I think about that too, like food plots. I've done a lot of broadcasting food plots, and you, you broadcast something, and within two, three hours, you've got a flock of turkeys on, and then I'm cursing the darn things out because they're eating my food plot seed. <laughs> it's not what it's there for. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they don't know that. But yep. you you've been pretty much a diehard turkey hunter for a long time. You try to you try to turkey hunt annually and you usually put a, one or two birds down, am I correct? Yeah, I really enjoy it and I get out a fair amount in the spring. One thing that's I'm blessed with too with being self-employed, there's pros and cons, but one of the pros would be I can somewhat adjust my schedule to to get out there a little bit more often than some guys working a you know, a strict schedule with work. So that definitely gives me some time to get out there. Yeah, how was your season this past year? Oh, you know, I switched to something else. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a touchy subject? <laughs> uh, it was a tougher season for me than many seasons. Now, there were it was also good in many ways, too. So I have two sons that now like to get out there some. Mm. And on the junior day, Carson, my second son, shot his first turkey, which was an incredible hunt. That was just a beautiful morning to be out there. So that was really cool. My oldest son later missed a gobbler. It was a disappointment, but Mm. it is what it is. Took off flying, and away he went. And, yeah, it was a – so in this area, we definitely don't have bird numbers like we used to, which is – for many parts of the state, that's the case. The numbers are a little bit lower. And, yeah, this spring – I did get one bird. I did not get the second bird. I had an opportunity, but – I blew it. Oh, really? I shot a branch. I thought I was above it. It was a rookie mistake. He came in strutting. It was super thick. And he came in an opening. I'm like, I can take him there. I knew he's well within range. I lifted up my gun. I just shoot a 870 Express, you know, uh, bead on the end of the barrel. Just a simple gun. Yeah, same thing I shoot. I'm like, I can take him right there. He lifted his head a little bit. He wasn't alert at all, but he just lifted up looking for the hen. And I shot, and he wheeled around and then took off flying, and I was just dumbfounded. I'm like, this is before I had shot any bird. This was the first week of the season. I'm like, what just happened? So I walked out to where he was. I'm like, how did I miss him? But I knew when he came in, there was a tree about maybe 10 feet in front of me that had a branch going out to the right. And when he came in, that branch was right there, but I 
felt I'd lifted my gun enough to get above that. Well, I walk back to that and here I have a picture of it on my phone, but I nailed that branch like really hard. There was actually a BB still lodged in there. So I would say almost all my shot went right into that branch. I just, in my line of sight, I thought I'm above it, but you know, my barrel is a little bit lower and being that close to me, that branch took the shot. <laughs> yeah, I think those stories haunt you more than you like to realize uh, it happens a lot. But you did say you killed the bird. You were messing around hunting with the bow for a while, too. You, you do that as much? I like to, so I have one spot. And Now, this spring it wasn't as good as some other years, but have a spot where a farmer lets me put out a blind. And, and in that case, I only have permission to turkey hunt it. He is a deer hunter, but he lets me turkey hunt, which I'm really grateful for. And he doesn't have many other people that hunt that. He has a buddy that hunts it some, but I've been blessed with, or we took a lot of birds off of that property and I've taken maybe four or so off of that spot with my bow. Mm. Now, last year I'd taken one with my bow at a different property that was outside of a blind. So that was a, a really fun hunt trying to take a bird with, with that's, the bow. That's tough. How did blind. that happen? Uh, you need the right setup. At least it works a lot better that way. Yeah. In that case... I was set up right beside or somewhat behind a greenbrier bush and I had a decoy set out really close to me just at the field edge and I was back in behind the greenbrier bush and I was working the bird. He was out in the field and he would, he would usually gobble when I called, which was really nice so I could know where he's at. And he slowly worked my way and he could see the decoy. And when he got to, he was right along that field edge right beside the woods there. And when he got to maybe eight yards or so I could see glimpses of him coming right up to the decoy and knew as soon as he gets behind that green briar bush I'm going to have to draw and I'm going to have to be at full draw when he steps out because there's going to be a point when he comes past that that I'm going to be way too visible but fortunately with the decoy I mean that was a, a huge help in that scenario he was locked in on that and he comes strutting right behind that green briar bush and it was not quite a point blank shot but it was probably a six seven yard shot of him in full strut no clue I was there and shot him and he took off running and I felt like I should have hit him good but I wasn't exactly sh sure so I jumped out from the position I was just to look out in the field further and by that time he was expiring already he maybe ran 15 yards and just piled up oh that's awesome I look back at that hunt that was any bird is special but taking one with the bow outside the blind was one of the more memorable hunts I was on a kick for the longest time I could not kill a spring gobbler with the bow in PA now, I know that's very specific. I killed, uh, I killed, I think, two in Virginia in the springtime. And I've killed, like, two or three birds in the fall in PA while I was deer hunting with the bow. Sure. But for whatever reason, I just would always choke and mess up in PA trying to kill one with the bow. And I did the same thing this year. Okay. I ended up had birds in a field and uh, got myself situated behind a giant brush pile and did the same thing. Kind of called them to a point where I'm like, yeah, I can, sh I can shoot him yep. there. and 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 shot and when he when i hit him it i heard it boom, and i was like well, mm -hmm. that sounded good and he sure. kind of ran over and then all of a sudden he like took off sprinting down the hill and i'm oh, thinking man. don't tell me i wounded this bird yeah. and I, I like ran across the field and got to this edge and i'm looking down the hill and i'm like he's got to be like i'm thinking he's going to be under a log or something and i'm looking I, I thought i can't believe i don't see him hobbling because he was hurting and i'm looking yeah. i'm looking I'm like you know doing the whole scan i start scanning closer to me all of a sudden i look and i'm like holy cow, this is a blood trail better than some deer I oh, shot. Oh, wow. Okay. And I followed it down. He was laying dead in, under a tree branch. He was oh, dead wow. instantly. It was like, I, and he went like 40 yards. Wow. Like, that yep. surprised me. But, yeah, it was there was something special about shooting one 
outside of a blind like that. Sure. And it was just a Jake, but I didn't care. It was oh, the first yeah. one with the bow. And yeah. I feel like anyone with the bow is fun. Yeah. Well, congrats, man. That's, yeah, that's an accomplishment. It's, it's something. It was definitely fun. Like I said, it's just something about chasing turkeys, but uh, I know you, I want to bring up, go back to, to tur- turkey. So, I mean, you, you said, I remember talking to you, you said you really enjoy mounting turkeys. It's mm-hmm. just, you don't, you probably don't, do you get a lot throughout a year? So this spring was the most I've ever got. It was, I believe, 17 for life-size mounts, which at that point I realized I got to start saying no because they, t- I mean, no to future birds, at least for this point, because they take a lot of time. And again, I'm, I look at, I try to gauge how much can I get done within a year. And I don't want to just take in too many. I did really didn't expect to get in that many. So that's enough for me where I'm at right now for a year. So I believe that. And I'm assuming they've got to be just tedious just because, I mean, when it comes to skinning a turkey, I mean, it's got to be very, very tedious as far as what you do to make sure it's well prepared for a form. Sure. Yeah. They take a lot of time. And one thing with turkey, I'll say this about predators and turkeys. So there's a lot of taxidermists that do a lot of deer and they're good at doing a deer. They can put a nice deer together. There's a lot of taxidermists that aren't as, um, they don't have quite the, uh, what word am I looking for? I don't know if skill is the right word, maybe not as much practice with some of the like turkeys and predators. So one thing I've been blessed with, with the experience I've had and going through some training, I found out that there's some turkey hunters out there that are willing to travel for a turkey taxidermist that they're happy with the birds. There's people that are willing to travel for good predator taxidermy. Not saying that they, there aren't people out there willing to travel for a nice deer mount, mm-hmm. but I see it more with turkeys and predators. Almost like a where, specialty. Sure. Of. Yeah. So I try to push a little bit more for turkeys and predators because I really enjoy doing those as well. And like I said, I don't want to do strictly deer. So right. I like the variety. So the turkeys that I would t- taken in this spring, for example, most of them were somewhat local people. There's one, maybe several that would have traveled a few hours to come here, but most of them are more local uh, customers. All right, folks, it's that time of year for fall food plot planning, and this year I'm proud to be working with Vitalize Seed. I work with them because they're great people and they're extremely passionate about wildlife and soil health. My fall food plots will be planted in Vitalize's Carbon Load, a 16-way diverse mix that is highly attractive to whitetails and has countless benefits to soil and soil health. If you've ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of different seed blends on the market, check out Vitalize's 1-2 planting system. It's designed how nature intended, to make biology work for you. Now, each plant species in the blend has the proper ratio of seed to grow synergistically, not allowing any to outcompete another. This provides season-long forage for wildlife as well as benefiting the soil biome. There's no need for complex crop rotations with monocultures that are susceptible to drought and overbrowsing. Whether you plant with fancy no-till equipment or a bag spreader and a lawnmower, Vitalize can work in any food plot. For more information about Vitalize and soil health practices, visit VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Well, turkeys are one of those things, like, and it comes to any game species. I mean, when you, if you're excited and you shoot a good deer, you shoot a good bird or whatever, and you get excited and you want to, you want to get it, you know, you know, get it mounted. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time, you're not thinking about the taxidermist from the perspective of, 
you know, how good of a job that I prepare this to give it to them. A lot of times there's excitement and they give it to you and you might not never go. And turkeys are one of those things I'm, I always cringe at some of the birds I've seen after you kill them from yeah. stepping on the head or, yep. you know, blowing their head off with a 12 gauge or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I wanted to know, like, when it comes to preparation on some of those, I, I guess, more specialty stuff that you like to do, like, are there do's and don'ts or things that people should keep in mind if they want to get a turkey mounted, if they want to get a coyote mounted or something like that? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. And I'm glad to hear someone else cringes when they see some, uh, see somebody stepping on a turkey head. (laughs) Well, I step on a turkey head knowing I'm not going to do anything with it. But I mean, I've seen that. And then people say, I'm going to get it mounted. And you look at the neck, it's like, well, all the feathers are gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you a hundred percent. I have no problem with people stepping on turkey head if they don't want to get it mounted. It's just, too many times where in the excitement, they might not even really think about, you know, how's this going to look in the end, you know, taxidermy wise. But I have a Facebook page and I usually, before the spring turkey season starts, I'll put a something out about, you know, how to care for a turkey if you do want to get one mounted. Because turkey, more than a deer, you need, if you want to get a good mount, it starts with the hunter and caring for the animal, caring for the bird after the shot. And for for a turkey... I would say the most common thing is after the shot, you know, a turkey usually starts flopping after the shot. Ideally, if you can get that bird off the ground before he starts flopping, that's better. Because in some cases, especially if it's rocky or if it's steep, the turkey starts flopping, he might start losing some feathers. And feathers, while you can replace some feathers, it takes time. Mm. It takes a lot of work and depends where that's a big patch ripping out. That just becomes more difficult to repair. So... I just, I can really appreciate when someone brings me a turkey that I can just tell was well cared for after the shot. Um, I would advise either picking it up by the head or you can pick it up by the feet. You just really need to watch out for those spurs. I would say grab above the spurs when you're holding the turkey upside down, like by the feet. So if the turkey starts spinning, you know, if he has long spurs or sharp spurs that he's not cutting up your hand. Yeah, I've made that mistake. Fortunately, I didn't get cut up too bad, but yeah, I got dinged up already, but doing that same thing, flopping like crazy. What about uh, what about like head preparation stuff? Like, do you use like a freeze dry? Do you freeze dry the heads, or do you use like a formed head, or like because that's got to be something to consider? Because and that, again, that's a very delicate portion. Sure. Yep. So I do use the real head, freeze dried head. I will send that exact head out to get freeze dried for the customer. Now, unless it's shot up too bad, or we need to replace it or something like that. There's sometimes where that happens, but most times I can use the real head for the hunter, and. Back to stepping on the head. Usually it doesn't do damage to the head, but what often will happen if they're stepping on the turkey's head while it's flopping, you're also most times stepping on some neck feathers, and which can often be pulled out during the time the turkey is flopping. So mm-hmm. it's fine to pick it up the ground, pick it off the ground, let it flop around, and while you're holding it, he's not uh, being uh, on the ground, you know, losing some feathers. So um, as far as the head, I'm not as concerned about that, but if the hunter has access to paper towels and the turkey head is bleeding. You know, if you can wrap it in paper towels, even put it in a bag, you know, just put a plastic bag over, bag over it just to keep the blood from running down the feathers. That's always good. But more important, I say the most important thing is just not letting the turkey flop on the ground, losing the feathers. Mm. Yeah, so blood can be washed off. Yeah, it's ideal when it's not over the feathers, but All right. it doesn't concern me. Well, same thing bad. with anything. I mean, I've, I've seen some stuff and I've been guilty of this where you bring something to a taxidermist and it's just like, a mess and yeah. like it's 
to me, it's just like common courtesy. Yeah, you can clean it up, but if I were yeah. you, I'd charge a premium. <laughs> but no, like uh, another thing you were bringing up, predators and talking about specialty stuff. Somebody told me once that one of the areas where a lot of predator work can lack is around the face because the, the detail, I don't know if this is true or not, but the mm-hmm. details, nose, eyes, and stuff like that, there's very specific things between a cat and a dog, and that's kind of what separates, you know, really good work from decent work and in, in stuff. And I was kind of curious, like, if that's true and like what are some of the other things when it comes to predators if people want to get a predator mounted that they should keep in mind when they're a caring for it and b mm-hmm. trying to think of you know come up with a taxidermist sure. to do that yeah yeah a couple of things i comment on that so this holds true for almost anything with taxidermy the sooner you can get it either in a freezer or cooler, the better. Now, deer, for example, I understand you want to skin it, maybe take it to the butcher and they'll put it in a cooler. It's fine in the cooler for some time, you know, until you get it to the taxidermist. But what people, back to spring turkey a little bit, some guys will gut them. I prefer, or field dress them. I prefer if they're, if they don't do that, just ends up making more of a mess. If they can get it in a cooler, in a freezer, or Call their taxidermist as soon as possible and maybe see what the, their taxidermist would like them to do with it. It's always a good, a good way to start out rather than just assume. Mm-hmm. Um, in the spring, it's warm. You, you need to get that turkey cooled as soon as you can. I'm not saying you need to rush around like within an hour, but just think about that. Don't let it hang out all day on a spring day and then, oh, decide you want to take it to the taxidermist. Yeah. Handle it like you would be if you want to eat the meat. Just think about basically handle it the same way for taxidermy. You don't want to have your meat sitting out in the sun and getting warm. You same thing for the skin of the animal. Um, as far as you ask about predator work, I'll just come in a few things. So I'll I'll go again back to I don't want to come across as having it figured out or being boastful. Like taxidermy is an ever learning process. Sure, just like I, hunting. Right, you'll never completely master it so my bobcats for example i want to continue learning something with each one and this past year i put a bobcat together a fisher and a red squirrel and a turkey and took all four of them to our state show and that was the first time competing and it was a really neat experience i was grateful for the opportunity definitely learned some things for the future ones and i also had bought a DVD on mounting a competition bobcat, learned a few things here and there. So anytime you can go to a class, and even if you just pick up on some minor details, some very minor details Mm -hmm. make a big difference in the end result. So there's a lot of taxidermy that I see, especially with predators that you look at and you like, it's hard, almost hard to look at the animal. I'm, I just seen a post someone had about getting their bobcat back from a taxidermist. I don't know where it was, but they were extremely disappointed with the way it looked and were wanting some opinions. Well, it does for a good mount. It is good for the, for the customer to shop around a little bit, to check with the taxidermist, look at pictures and, or even sometimes it can be a little deceiving if they just see one picture of a mount. Oh, this was a good mount. Well, did they have help putting it together? Did they do it on their own or is this consistent with their work? So a lot of things to think about when shopping around. If you really want to get a good mount, again, especially for your more your specialty stuff, whether it's turkey or bobcat or fisher or whatever it is, make sure the taxidermist is consistent with putting out nice work. And some of that people are more focused on the price 
And I can understand, like when, when a customer calls me and is price shopping, I have no problem with, with them price shopping. Sometimes I will make a comment, so just, you know, as you're price shopping, just be aware you, in general, you get what you pay for. Um, I'm not, I'm certainly not the cheapest guy around, but I know I'm not the most expensive guy around either. So right. <laughs> I say that for whatever it's worth. I mean, uh, I continue learning and continuing to improve. Also, at least I find it for me, I am spending even more time on my mounts than what uh, I would have sometimes, you know, there's little details. They take time. There's a balance to it all. You know, when you take something to a competition, you can spend, there's guys that'll spend 10 hours painting a deer nose. Well, does that pay for commercial work? But yeah, you'd, right. you'd have to like raise your prices significantly, like triple. Time is money. <laughs> right. So there's a balance to it all. But my goal is to put out the best I can um, in the time that is allotted to to mount the animal. So I'm not sure if I really answered your question. No, I there. think that does. I mean, quality work is going to come from experience, right? Anything you do, experience is hard to beat. Yeah. So. And I, I like that. You brought up price shopping. I mean, it, I don't know if this is countrywide or if it's just confined to, like, the stubborn Pennsylvania Dutch mindset of our area. But there's mm-hmm. so many times, like, oh, that's too much. That's too much on anything in yeah. life. But uh, you do get what you pay for. And, like, if you truly value a trophy, you want quality and you want to preserve that memory. And mm-hmm. I think that's important to consider. Sure. Right. <laughs> And back to the guy that's price shopping, neither, or I, I tell people, you know, if they're happy with their work, then that, that's what's important to exactly. me. Or that's what I care about. So I don't care if they take it to someone cheaper. I don't care if they're happy with the end result. That's what matters, right? So that's I don't want to try to pressure someone into spending more than what they want to. And I did, I'm going to bring up a good point there. I just thought of, so I have a, a friend of mine who got a really nice buck mounted two years ago. And when he got it back, he told me what he paid for and everything else. And I looked at it. In my personal opinion, I thought, man, Brian does nicer work. Rodney does nicer work. All, you know, a couple of different taxidermists. I know I'm like, that's just not as nice. But at the, at the end of the day, what you just brought up, he was happy with it. Sure. And that's all that mattered. Yeah. So I, I bring that all up to say, if somebody else doesn't like your mount, who cares? It's your deer. It's the same thing of like the concept of the buck you shoot. Like yeah. if, if you don't like the buck I shoot – it doesn't matter. I shot it. It's my deer. Sure. So I wanted to bring yep. that up. Yep, exactly. So while it, I like to see quality taxidermy, I guess it comes down to more what the customer is happy with and yeah. what they want to pay for. And taxidermy is not a necessity, but it, as much as we might think it is sometimes. It's my not wife a, definitely doesn't think <laughs> it's a necessity. Sure. So I don't want to see someone put themselves in a financial hardship, you know, if they have a family to provide for and then them spending too much on taxidermy. To me, that doesn't feel good to me either as a taxidermist. Right. So. So, but, you know, predators, I mean, pretty much when you look at predators or any care for, for game species that come in, keeping it cool, trying to minimize hair loss, feather loss, stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. there's really not much to buy. What about from the perspective of whitetail? So we're coming up here on whitetail season and, you know, that's going to be the the big one. I'm sure you probably get as many deer heads as anything. I've heard people talk about, you know, if you really like your tax and everything, you want to help them, you should take measurements. And I don't even know what Mm -hmm. those are. So like, I, I just open it up. Like when you get a deer, I'm sure most people bring you a deer and tell you the, the way they want the head turned and, mm-hmm. and the form that they like the most. And that's about it. But are there other things to consider if you want to, you know, be a friend of your taxonomy? Sure. Help them out? Yeah, well, there certainly are. And that's a good question. One of the most common 
mistakes I see on a deer, for example, is in the skinning process, a lot of hunters don't realize how much brisket is on a shoulder mount. Now, I know our listeners can't see what we can see right here, but you can see the briskets on these deer. There's every year I get deer that are brought in with a brisket that was cut too short. Mm -hmm. And maybe for the listeners to give them a little bit of a visual when that deer is skinned, usually make an incision down the belly. Some guys will take it all the way up into the brisket, like between the front legs. Well, you, you, if for a shoulder mount, you want to stay back a little bit. You don't want to go up into that brisket and Mm -hmm. cut directly in between the front legs. The other thing people will do sometimes they'll cut down the front side of the front leg and go straight across leg to leg. Mm -hmm. When you do that, that removes all the brisket from that cape. And a lot of butcher shops are familiar with, you know, how to skin for a shoulder mount, but even sometimes they make mistakes too and cut down. Basically, you do not want to cut straight across from front leg to front leg for a shoulder mount, or you're going to remove too much of that brisket. If you go around to the back of the leg, you have that white hair and brown hair meeting. There's a hair pattern change there. If you cut directly down the front side of the, or the back back side of the front leg, and angle that back to where you made that incision for gutting the deer, which leaves all that brisket, that skin between the front legs attached to the, the cape, the neck of the deer. You really want to leave that attached to the deer. So it can be fixed. It can be sewn back in, but it just makes extra work for the taxidermist. And you can see it, that sometimes, right? If it's on. a short haired deer, it's extremely hard to hide that hundred percent. So yeah, like an early season deer, like my favorite mounts are actually like the first two weeks of season. I just, I just love that, that coat at oh, that yeah. time of year. I think that's like the neatest looking stuff. I like, I'm glad you brought the skinning too, because I remember the first couple of times I did it, I, I butchered it. And like, I've to the point now when I do it, if I'm going to get a deer mounted, I've actually been giving the, the whole hide to the, to the taxidermist sure. because like I, I've seen people talk about like, Oh, it's good to hang the deer and then, you know, take measurements where you want to make your cuts. And I've even seen guys put tape around certain places where you want to make a cut. So you get, you know, precision cuts sure. and, and up in legs and stuff. And, um, one thing I learned the first time I tried to do it and I tried to just cape it, that was a pain in the neck. Yeah. So I just, yeah. I, when I do it, I, leave the deer hang and I I'm bringing this up because I want to know if I'm doing my, my taxidermist a favor or if I'm sure. doing him a, a problem but like I'll, I'll skin from the legs down and bring it over you know up to you know where the I make the the gut uh the gut incision up sure. to the sternum and then just keep bringing it down and then just let the whole hide on yep. when I do it you know following that white line stuff like is that is that just as easy if if not just so that you can make the cuts you need Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. And most deer that I get in do have the full hide just like attached, just like you're saying. And a lot of butcher shops will, excuse me, leave the whole hide there as well. Mm. So that's nice. And even what happens sometimes, even if the brisket is not cut properly, if the full hide is still there, I can still save that brisket off the deer. Now, if the customer cuts the deer the length where they think they need, which if they do, sometimes they don't realize again, how much of the shorter is there. Sometimes they'll cut it too short thinking, you know, this is but deer, I'm going to get the neck and head mounted. Well, there's still a lot of shoulder there. So mm. save at, if you're going to cut the hide off, save at least half the hide. That way your taxidermist can cut. I mean, if he needs to take extra off, he can, you can't so easily put it back on. So yeah, yeah that's, that sounds real. Or that what you described there is good. Cause a lot of them, like I said, will bring the full hide. And there was something else I wanted to comment on that. Now it slipped my mind. Oh, measurements. You brought up that. And that's a good question. And 
some taxidermists may say differently than what I do, but I personally, when a customer takes measurements and gives me their measurements, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. And here's why. I don't mind at all if they take measurements, but measurements I've found, like when you're talking little measurements, say eye to nose, well, where exactly was that tape measure held on the eye to nose? Like there's, that makes a difference whether it was used with the calibers or just a measuring tape, you know, where they started and stopped, uh, nose to burr, like even though they can get fairly close there, I'm talking burr of the antler. Mm -hmm. Most times when a deer comes to me, the head's still in, I can take those measurements. Now, if they take neck measurements, even if I don't have that, if they just bring the head and hide to me and they tell me how big the neck measured, well, where exactly they held that tape makes a big difference. So do they hold it an inch behind the neck, two inches, three inches, because your neck keeps getting bigger as it goes down? Um, also sometimes, you know, the customer, <laughs> you know, wants a big as amount possible. So they might stretch it a little bit. I've come to the place in the, in the experience that I've, I measured a lot of deer capes, probably a, a thousand or so, or probably beyond that. I'm comfortable with letting the skin tell me what size that neck needs to be. So I don't want to say never take any measurements because it can't hurt anything. But to me, I don't look at, at it as, you know, this is now I can get a, a better amount now because right. I have these measurements. So again, I guess I would suggest people ask their taxidermist, do you want me to take any field measurements or not? And if the taxidermist does, they can guide, guide them through some field measurements. Now, in the case where say the deer is taken out of state and sometimes a hunter will take it to a local taxidermist just to have it caped out and then brought to their taxidermist, you know, a more local taxidermist, it can be helpful for an eye to nose measurement. And if it's taken from another taxidermist, I'm going to take that as a little bit more accurate than right. say the hunter not to just discredit the hunter but or just to not believe the hunter but as a taxidermist you know a little bit more exactly where to take those measurements um that but makes a lot of sense even with the eye to nose i can gauge off the skin now with experience you know what that skin is telling me what the eye to nose length really needs to be what the neck length really needs to be so that makes a lot of sense and i that was good because the other thing too I've talked I've heard people talk about was like taking uh, taking a measurement like from the tip of one of the antlers to the nose to get a gauge on mm -hmm. where that that angle is of mm -hmm. the rack and and you can see that if the if the skull is still attached within the deer right. if you're doing that finishing process and here again I have a visual here that the listeners don't but I can gauge a lot just by looking at that skull plate where those beams need to be in alignment with the head uh, looking at where the the eye, the, the skull starts to, uh, or the, or the eye socket is to, or on the skull. So that tells me a lot too, when I go to set the antlers. Well, how much, how much more difficult does it make it for you as a taxidermist? It's like, let's say somebody shoots a buck and they put it, you know, put it on a board for years, or they just keep the rack for years and they got rid of the hide. But for some years later, they look at it and they go, you know what? I'd kind of like to get that mounted so they get sure. somebody else's cape on it. Mm -hmm. Like, is that a bigger pain in the neck or is it still like if you've got a cape, you can just form it to that cape and it still looks preserved? So you want to get a cape, ideally, that is proportioned to the age of the deer, sure. the caliber of the deer. So that's going to be the biggest thing. You don't want to put a 140-inch deer on a year-and-a-half-old buck cape or it's just going to look funny because sure. you can't. It's you just can't gonna fix be a, that. Yeah. Right. Now, no, to, to answer your question, in a, a short answer would be, no, that can easily be done. Mm. And I've had that happen sometimes, even for guys that 
get a mount and they're not happy with it, they want to get it remounted. I'll get a replacement cape for them and put their antlers on that. Now, ideally, you want to get a cape too where the mass on the antlers was similar. Mm, um, it that's can, tough. You can adjust it. You can make adjustments where trim it a little bit bigger or make it a little bit smaller, but it's good to have one that was close just to make the mount the process a little, bit, a little bit less grueling. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> good deal. Well, hey, this is uh, this has been good. This has been fun. Am I missing stuff when it comes to taxidermy that we ought to let people know about when it comes going into fall. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud. Like I was thinking about preservation. I was thinking about, um, you know, good cuts. We, we talked about that. What are some other things that maybe I wouldn't think about from a taxidermist perspective that would be good for people to know about going into fall? Sure. Another area that maybe I'll address is dragging a deer. So mm. some hunters, especially if they're hunting, way back in now there's a lot of hunters that are starting to pack their deer out mm-hmm. skin it themselves while that can be great they might not be dragging it and rubbing hair off but the more hunters that are skinning their deer if they're not familiar with where to make the cuts for a shoulder mount you get a little bit more you can get more capes that are not cut properly mm-hmm. but again it can be simply fixed by if they have any questions or there's youtube videos or again i would say call your local tax or your tax service that you use and get some pointers to them, Rather, think about it beforehand rather than an afterthought. Again, thinking about the more you care for the amount, or the more you care for your animal after it's harvested, the quicker you get it cooled, skinning properly should end in a better result for the finished product when it's on the wall, the better the hunter cares for the animal. So back to dragging a deer. Some people, again, don't re- uh, thinking about, or they just, In the moment, they're focused on getting the deer out of the woods, and they might be attaching a rope behind the the head or on the neck of the animal and just dragging it. Well, what happens then if you're dragging it that way, those shoulders are going to rub the rocks. You drag it across logs, and how many times have you been in the woods where you – it was obvious where someone drug a deer out because there was hair left behind. Mm -hmm. You know, every rock you could see the hair left behind. Those shoulders, if you're going to drag a deer, you need – if you're going to drag a deer and you want a shoulder mount, you've got to keep those shoulders off the ground because you you uh, risk breaking hair off. Well, it will happen if you're dragging the shoulders. You're going to be damaging the hair. So keep that in mind um, if you're dragging a deer, really any distance, because all it takes is one rock, and you really hit, hit a rock hard, and the shoulder's on the ground, well, you're going to leave hair behind, and it's going to show in the mount. Yeah, now that you bring that up, I had that happen to me. It was the biggest buck I'd ever killed at the time. I'd killed him with a rifle opening day of rifle season, and where I shot this deer, it was one of those where it wasn't that I was lost, but I didn't exactly know where I was at and what the best way was to take this deer out. And when it started, like I shot this deer and was looking at him like, this is my biggest buck. I'm going to get it mounted. And uh, I started dragging the deer and it turned into an all day into the night event until wow. I got it out. And it, it came a point in time where the cape meant nothing to me and sure. I ended up getting a European. Yeah. I just did a European yep. on it, but there was stuff. And another good thing you brought up and we didn't even talk about this. I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, talk about dragging and losing hair. Bear are a perfect example of that. Like yeah. I'm fortunate that the group that I've bear hunted with every single bear we kill, we carry out for that okay. very reason. Sure. Yep. Um, and I wanted to share with this with, with people too. I learned this method. So a lot of people, you know, I've, I've seen videos on YouTube and stuff. People kill a bear in PA and they drag it out like a deer. And that mm-hmm. makes me cringe because if you want to get a rug or something like, like that's rough, but, 
Um, I learned another method that if you have less people, it does a good job. Like if you want to get a rug, I had people uh, like they took a took a large log, maybe four to six inches in diameter, and put it under the the front legs. Uh, of the bear yep. across the chest mm-hmm. and let the head drape over the sure. front and tied it up really good. And then you can get two people on that and lift it up. Yep. And the only thing that drags lightly is, uh, is the back inside part of the back legs, mm-hmm. which aren't going to be as important for the, for the, the, the rug, so to speak. So that sure. was one thing I learned from a dragging perspective, like that actually worked really yeah. well the first time I did it. And I was looking at it the one time I was like, this is actually easier than when we carry them out. Cause we've, we've carried them out like, uh, we actually use a stretcher sometimes. We'll bring, we'll go back to camp, get this stretcher, mm-hmm. put the bear on the stretcher, and you can get four to six guys on yeah. it. It works great. But some of the mountains you carry through, it's 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 rough. But yep. that's just one. I just you brought that up, and I wanted to bring that up with bear. Sure. Yeah. That's. I'm glad you did. I have found that bear are more forgiving with deer as well for dragging. Mm. They're not. The hair is not going to break off quite as quick. Uh, deer hair is just a little more fragile. But excellent. I mean, yeah. If you can do something to prevent hair from falling out, that's great. And another thing, too, um, I saw this mistake. The first bear I ever killed, um, when I went to the taxidermist, there was another guy there that skinned his own bear. And when he skinned it for a rug, he didn't realize that he could cut right through the pads for for a bear for a rug gotcha. and and the, the cut went down the leg and it turned over the front and went to the top of the mm. paw and i remember the taxidermist looked at the like oh that's gonna be fun to fix <laughs> yeah and, and so i mean is there anything to keep in mind like if somebody's going to skin their own bear and bring it to you yeah there is now that's going to depend a little bit some taxidermists might have their own preferences on how a bear is skinned but usually for a life-size mound anyway, so you make an incision to field dress the animal. What I tell people when they call and have questions on that, I tell I explain it this way to basically extend that incision where they field dressed. For This is for life-size or even for a rug, this would hold true as well. And in that case, you can almost go from take that incision down basically to the vent and up the back leg, up to the pad, basically to pop the, you can just cut off the foot, leave the foot in for the taxidermist to skin out. Mm-hmm. Unless someone really knows what they're doing with the skinning, they can take the the pad out but or the, the foot out. But in most cases, they just leave the pad in for the taxidermist to skin or the, sorry, the foot in for the mm, taxidermist right. to skin. And then the front legs the same way. Take it up, that incision between the front legs and then just take it down uh, both legs and remove it that way. Gotcha. Cut the legs off at the foot. Um, one more thing that is changing this year with Pennsylvania, and maybe I'm not sure if other states are making changes on as well with CWD. I'd actually just got a letter in the mail from the Game Commission this week, I believe, that they are giving taxidermists and deer processors the opportunity to receive deer taken in CWD areas. So the restrictions are being lifted a little bit in that sense where I'm planning to submit my information so that a hunter can, you know, bring me a deer that was taken in a CWD Mm -hmm. area. So I'm not sure how broad those changes are. Maybe you know more about that, Mitch. I really don't. And that's probably one of those things that I should look up and research and put on the show so people can hear because it's good information. Like I remember the first time I hunted in a CWD unit, I was kind of caught off guard with what you were supposed to do Mm -hmm. if you killed a deer and I'm prepared for it now, but that's a lot of stuff that people can get caught with their pants down, so to speak with, with that. But, uh, 
no, this has been great. I think this was really helpful. Uh, I'm kind of curious. So going into hunting season, anything you're excited about this fall? <laughs> well, this summer has been, I would say busier than any summer I've had before. And I've observed some fields as it was getting dark in the evenings and seen some bucks out in fields. But unfortunately I have zero cameras out yet. Mm -hmm. We're putting an addition on our house and with the taxidermy load that I have, I'm just focused on trying to get as much done before hunting season starts. So as far as what I'm focused on, I have two sons this year that are wanting to do some archery hunt or deer hunting as well. So I know my time in the woods will be a little bit less than some years, but I'm still looking forward to it. It's just personally, I wish this was June yet <laughs> just to get some more work done, but it is what it is. I, I know am. what you mean that, that all like I, it happens every year. It's just, I just, I just said this again on another podcast. Like it's, I just see it getting shrunken down more and more at your time. Like I'm doing stuff to my house and sure. kids and family. And it's just yep. like the, the stuff you used to do in preparation gets harder and harder. And, I think that's why I enjoy the podcasting aspect of it because I get to talk to a lot of people who live very similar situations mm -hmm. and still find a way to be successful year in and year sure. out. And or maybe uh, what it does is maybe their their success as far as the the deer they harvest have changed. Um, maybe that's changed and it's not the way it used to be. But their perspective and their outlook on the phase of life mm -hmm. and how they handle that mentally. Like that's really helped me because mm -hmm. I mean, I've had times where it's just like, I'm acting like a little kid, like not going <laughs> to want to throw a temper tantrum because I'm not doing what I want to do. And at the end of the day, like it's this much of, you know, it's such a small portion sure. of life. Yep. So yeah, that's what one thing I've enjoyed from, from that Avenue. But yeah, you've got a family, young kids and everything else. And that's uh it's a walk of life that changes stuff, but sure. I'm still hoping that I shoot something to bring to you this fall. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be great. And I'll say this yet, too. We talked about predators and, and turkey. I really enjoy trapping as well and going after predators, and that's something that with my children growing up, that's something they're taking an interest in, and I just I love going out on a trap line with them and mm. taking them out and last year over Christmas break when they had off of school we had ran a trap line for raccoons well not just raccoons but we were targeting raccoons more than other animals and I'll say this yet with the turkey numbers and I mentioned the turkey population declining there's in my opinion a lot of or too many people hanging up their traps because the fur doesn't have value to it and I look at it as we do need to manage your fur bearers. And I think the raccoon population in many areas is way too high. And I, I wasn't aware for many years how devastating raccoons are on turkey nests. Now, with people putting trail cameras over turkey nests that they're finding and seeing the destruction that a raccoon will come in there and raid the turkey nest, sometimes take the eggs, sometimes even kill the hen. And I look at all the nest predators that are out there. Even skunks will raid nests when they can. You take the eggs. And a lot of people saying, hey, the fur's not worth anything, so why bother? And I'd say for the, the guys out there that have children, hey, take your children out and get them to introduce them to trapping. And take, help out with the nest predators, get the uh, predator population, or keep that in check or mm -hmm. in control. Not, we're, not, we're not out there to eliminate them. We are stewards but we do need to manage and i would encourage people to get out there and 
get after those predators. I agree. And I, I, trap trapping is time consuming. It's, it's not yeah. as time consuming as you'd think. But I remember one time, when the, like the first year that I helped do some trapping, um, the trap line that I set. I, I remember I, I had all these ideas of where I wanted to set traps, and I, I looked, and it was like all day. The whole day went by, and I got a lot done. But I, I was mm-hmm. like, I can't believe that took all day long yeah. to set all those traps yeah. that I did. And, uh, you know, I remember the first few years, you know, the amount of raccoons was just incredible. I mean, I remember like the first 15 days of trapping, we caught like 16 raccoons on, on one property. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was eye opening. Mm-hmm. One issue I have with, with trapping and it's, it's my own personal blockheadedness is, you know, when I want to be deer hunting, that's when I should be trapping. Sure. When you want to have the best impact on reducing raccoon populations mm-hmm. it ought to be done when it when the first part of the season sure and i know there's a lot of controversy over this and i think it's very dependent on the property type you have but i will say this is just my opinion some properties you hunt if you're going to check a trap line every day i think mm-hmm. that has an impact on your deer hunting mm-hmm. um not every property i think there's properties that um you know might be mixed ag agriculture that, that you can do um, early in the morning with a truck and stuff like mm-hmm. that because there's there's a, a level of traffic there that deer get used to. But I've hunted uh, mountain properties and stuff where you start going around with an ATV consistently and there hasn't been an ATV used or a, for, or a truck or something like that. I think some of the deer that has an impact, not all of them. Yeah. And um, like I said, are you going to avoid the, the landscape of every single deer in the area? Well, no, because some deer do get used to it. I mean, I've seen that, but there's sure. others that you don't. And I, I'm just so mentally, it's just such a mental blockade. Plus that's a busy time of year in the first right. place. Yep. And then when I do get time to trap in the winter time, if you've got snow cover, like it's hard to catch oh, raccoons yeah. sometimes and like make the major impact. And I think yep. it closes somewhere around a little after valentine's day like the 25th or something somewhere in that range i've noticed some states are opening and extending the trapping season um, towards fawning season okay for for raccoons and stuff and that was one of those things that like i keep thinking like i would love if we had that opportunity because i think like from february up until fawning season and nesting season like Mm -hmm. i would have time to do that and i would love that opportunity but yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be a labor of love because I hate skinning. I, yeah. I I really don't like it. The idea of fleshing raccoons makes sure. me cringe. But you brought up a good point. That would be one of those things to incorporate your kids in too. And that's some of the reason I mentioned it. With the stage of life where I'm in with my family growing, my children, that's something I can easily do outdoors, just take them along at least some mornings, even if it's not every morning. Still include them some in the trap line, right. something they enjoy. And yeah, at the same time while controlling some nest predators. And I'll say this too, trapping is something I enjoy. Not everyone enjoys it. I enjoy it and I do it for several reasons. Something I can do with my children, but also thinking about nest predators. And I hear you on the, it's a busy time of the year to do that yet. And I feel the same thing. So I try to go after, I mean, I enjoy deer hunting, especially archery hunting and trapping over overlaps with that. But Usually, after, if I can get my buck in archery, I then shift a little bit to trapping and and get some traps out there. And I'll tell you this yet, Mitch, well, trapping season runs a lot longer than deer season, so Mm. 
<laughs> after rifle season is over, you still have opportunity. Yeah, if there's late season, you missed that. <laughs> well, I was, your, I, your tags are full by then. So. <laughs> <laughs> Some years they aren't. Last, uh, last year I had a lot of full tags, and I still was, like, itching to go deer hunting. It was, like, gotcha. January 28th, and I'm still trying yeah. to shoot like – what am I doing? I shot a bunch of deer. Like I, I know I have yeah. a tag. It doesn't mean I need to, but no, and, you're, you're absolutely right, Brian. No, you're absolutely right. I'll say this. So I don't want everyone to feel like, Oh, they need to be out there setting traps. I mean, no, not everyone needs to do it, but there's too many people that have just hung them up because their furs aren't of any value. But I think we've got to look at it from a different angle and do it for the sake of sake of predator control. Well, yeah. And when you, when you talk about wildlife and being a steward of the land, there's a lot of topics along that discussion, and one of the topics that I, um, I'm, I'm planning, um, by the time that this episode airs, I think a lot of those episodes will have already dropped, but when it comes to um, habitat and managing deer numbers in the first mm-hmm. place, too, because, you know, as you said earlier, some of the places you hunt have pretty good deer population, and uh, a lot of farmers want to see the deer numbers reduced, mm-hmm. and I've said this many times that... Um, for, uh, many farmers have a carrying capacity, a mindset of the carrying capacity being lower than what it can handle. Mm-hmm. And many hunters have an idea of the carrying capacity being over what it can sure. be. And I, I think somewhere in between is where the deer population is or, or mm-hmm. could be. Mm-hmm. But one thing when you look at mixed ag, uh, farmers have agricultural fields that are manicured invested in produce high quality forage that deer can eat Mm -hmm. so obviously that's already an attraction but the landscape itself when you look at the same age forest across many of these valleys the amount of invasives that have crept in Mm -hmm. closed canopy again um, there's so many things that we don't have the level of quality native browse and vegetation to withstand populations that we have and therefore there's certain areas of the state that i think we're okay with the population because they can go to ag fields sure uh, that that's just my personal observation mm-hmm. i see places because i've been to a lot of farms where i'll go out bean fields are just absolutely devastated and you know there you look and there's 60 deer out every yeah. single night and maybe those 60 deer um are healthy Mm-hmm. But they're also healthy at the expense of a farmer. Sure. So <clears throat> I, I bring all this up to say when you bring up about trapping to be a good steward of the land, I'm not saying we need to shoot every deer. But keep in mind, what else can you do that's going to improve the quality of the game you hunt? Mm-hmm. I, I, not everybody has that opportunity. Not everybody owns land that can manipulate stuff. But if you've got the ability to remove invasives, manage the overstory, and do things that are going to promote quality things. It's, it's the same concept as trapping. Sure. Yep. So, and I, yep. I, I, I just had to bring that up. Sure. Yep, <laughs> that makes sense. Well, hey, before we, uh, before we close this out, um, tell us uh, a little bit more where you're located. Tell us a little bit more about uh, your, your setup here and you know, how people can follow you, get in touch with you, that kind of thing, if mm-hmm. they're interested in, uh, in doing some taxidermy work with you. Sure. Yeah, so located in Ringtown, Pennsylvania, and I do have a Facebook page, Triple Trophy Taxidermy. You can find me there, and also a website, TripleTrophyTaxidermy.com. And yeah, so I am a one-man operation, so as I said before, I try to somewhat manage how many 
animals I take in so that I can keep my turnaround time within a year. I know what it's like from a hunter's perspective. They're ready to get their trophy back, you know, shortly after they drop it off. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that already have the mindset of, you know, it's going to be a year because that's a lot of times that's the case. Now, there are some taxidermists that are less and there's some taxidermists that are over two years behind. To me, that would overwhelm me. I don't want to get to that place. So that's why I try to manage a little bit how I, how much I take in. So even my plans for the future are to still try to take in a variety of deer. And I really do. The only thing I do not do is fish. I don't accept any fish. I don't have much experience in that and I have plenty of work the way it is. So at this point, I'm not accepting any fish. Um, but predators, bobcats, and fisher are what I really enjoy. I think I have about a dozen fisher to mount after I get these deer finished, as well as, well as a number of bear and coyotes, things like that, or a variety of predators, really. And then after that, I want to move towards working at those spring turkey that I took in. So that'll keep me busy um, for quite a few months the way it is. So yep. I don't know what it'll all be like come fall how much I'll take in also have a my second son is really taking an interest in taxidermy as well in fact this summer he's probably out here in the shop more than he's not just loves to watch loves to get a little bit of hands-on where he can so yeah that investment might pay you and pay you in the long run <laughs> right and I I'm not opposed to ever getting someone else to help me out as well but at this point it's not necessarily something I'm looking to do certainly certainly Hey, Brian, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having this conversation with us. Be sure to, to check out Triple Trophy on Facebook. And, uh, hey, we'll, we'll catch you later. Good luck yeah. hunting, hunting season. Well, nice talking to you, Mitch. Thanks for stopping by.